Well, thank you so much. And uh, grab your Bible or your device, whatever. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 23. All right. So um, I honor your pastors. And uh, Pastor Aaron was sharing a little bit about the miracle of Life Church and what God has done here over the years. You guys are a part of a story that is being written through a divine hand. It's breathtaking to be here, isn't it? So thank you for the opportunity to just talk about Jesus. So I met Jesus when I was 17. I am the first Christian in my ancestry, in my family lineage. And um, so when I met him, he took my breath away. And there were some things that happened instantaneously. I was healed in my body. I was set free from quite a few addictions and I won't get in, into it today. So quite a few things happened instantaneously, but there were a few other things that happened over a process. And I realized that when we become followers of Jesus, God does not give us amnesia. We renew our mind. We are new in Christ, but we renew our mind. And over my faith journey, sometimes I've struggled with reconciling, why is it that God, who can do all things, why is it that sometimes I have situations or experiences in my life that do not line up with what I know to be true about God? And that's what I want to talk to you about briefly today. What do you do when you encounter a situation that does not line up with what you know to be true about Jesus? Well, who was Jesus? Jesus was a Hebrew man who spoke Aramaic, and yet his teachings were primarily initially recorded in ancient Greek. According to the gospel record, he never really traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown. Some scholars tell us he communicated on a third grade level. Others say it was a sixth grade level, which is it? I frankly don't know. What I do know is he communicated in a language that children could understand. How do we know that? It was the little boy who brought five loaves of barley bread, barley being the bread of the poor, and two small fish to the mighty one. He took it, gave thanks, broke it, and God fed the multitude. When I look at the Gospels, I see that Jesus came and he teaches us what to believe, but it's more than that. He also teaches us how to believe. He makes these statements in the Gospels where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, anyone who says of his brother in his heart, raka, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, is in danger of the fire of hell. What is he saying? He's not introducing people to a new truth. He is drawing their attention to a truth that was there all along. It was just simply overlooked, forgotten, or ignored. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He transitions the entire world from the old covenant to the new covenant through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is not the preferred way. Jesus is not the American way. He is not the easy way. He is not the most relevant way. According to Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. But it's interesting because there are 125 unique teaching incidents of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, and 13 of them start with content. Everything else starts with a question. Questions. It's not what you would expect from someone who claims to be the answer. And what I found on my faith journey is oftentimes God leads me not into the answer, but into the question. Another word for it would be mystery. 
In the Greek New Testament, more than one word is translated into English miracle. One of the words we translate into miracle is mysterion, where we get our word mystery. When you think of a miracle, you think of someone who was spiritually dead and they come alive because of the gospel. It's a reminder that Jesus didn't come to turn bad people into good people. Jesus came because apart from him, we are spiritually dead. It's a miracle. Salvation perhaps is the greatest miracle of all. I'm thankful for the gift of salvation. I'm thankful that he remembers not any of my sins. When you think of a miracle, you think of a marriage falling apart and God breathes life into that. You think of someone who is miraculously healed from a disease or an illness. You think of the drug addict who has been free for 26 years. But when you think of miracles, seldom do we think of mysteries. Seldom do we think of a miracle being a situation that the sovereign one invites us into that seems to make no sense, that certainly does not line up with what we know to be true about God from his word. We come across verses like Isaiah 45, 15, where God says of himself, I am the God who hides myself. Proverbs 25, verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of kings to search it out. It's no coincidence that the Hebrew Sabbath begins not at sunrise, but at sunset. When darkness begins to creep upon the face of the earth, when our eyesight grows dim and it becomes very difficult to see, that's when God says to his people, remember me and rest. When I think of the mysteries of God, I'm reminded that it is those situations that are sometimes hard and troubling where he forms us. And a disciple of Jesus does not memorize God. We become like God. And the way, one of the ways we become like God is when we walk not just through the green pasture, but through the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, but it is only a shadow. The 23rd Psalm says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do you do when your situation does not line up with what you know to be true about God? Well, Psalm 23 is ascribed to David. We know that David did not write what we have with his own hand. The most ancient Hebrew manuscripts are not written in 10th century BCE Hebrew. What we do know is David sang the psalm, and it was passed down orally through the generations and eventually would have been written down on something. But nonetheless, who is David? Well, David, we are introduced to him in 1 Samuel 16. At this time, he is an adolescent, and his vocation is shepherding. God speaks to a prophet named Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, and Samuel knows in that, in that house, in that space, he will choose the next king over Israel. 
It's interesting because David was not in the house. David was in the field. Why didn't God send the prophet to the field? Instead, God sends the prophet to the house. Sometimes God sends us to places and we have to wait and trust him for the promise to catch up. He goes to the house of Jesse and one by one, perhaps you know the story. If not, that's okay. I didn't read the story until I was 17. And eventually, the young shepherd boy named David comes into the home after one after another, his brothers are turned away by the prophet. They were not who God chose. And in a moment, David's entire life is about to change. He is handpicked by God to become the next king over Israel. It's interesting that Jesse did not invite David to the house when the prophet came. Ancient rabbinical tradition tells us that Jesse actually believed his son David was the product of an extramarital illicit affair. Now we know that's not true because David is in the ancestry of Jesus. Jesus is of the seed and lineage of David. But nonetheless, unfortunately, David suffered because of rumors. He is handpicked by God to rule and reign. Had you asked anybody on the earth, who is the king of Israel? They would have responded, King Saul. Had you asked anyone in heaven, who is the king of Israel? They would have said, King David. There's a conversation going on in heaven that we are unaware of. And that conversation has much more impact on our life than anything we will ever see. It's important to remember what you see is not all there is. And rather than moving into the castle where he sits on the throne and rules and reigns, David, the one handpicked by God to be king, he actually goes back and he returns to his vocation as a shepherd. In 1 Samuel 17, the young shepherd boy is delivering supplies to the front line of the battle. And in a moment, once again, David's life is about to change. Not one of the trained military soldiers in the ancient Israeli army were willing to take on the giant named Goliath. And so a young adolescent shepherd named David did. We know the hero of the story of David slaying Goliath is not David, it is God. But nonetheless, they began to write songs about the one who a chapter before was handpicked by God to rule and to reign. And the songs, some of them are recorded in Scripture. David, or Saul, has slain his thousands. David, his tens of thousands, even though David had only killed one in battle, already they ascribe to him being a mighty warrior. David catches the eye of the earthly reigning King Saul, and he is invited to serve in the court of the king. And there are very few things more dangerous in this life than a leader who has access to power and influence but does not walk in humility. And King Saul is insecure, and he is puffed up with pride. I remember somebody telling me once, Heath, if pride can turn an angel into the devil, just imagine what it can do to us. And King Saul is proud and arrogant, and he refuses to honor the one, the sovereign one who placed him on the throne to begin with. God is sovereign, Daniel says, over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whomever he chooses. David is serving in the court of King Saul, and King Saul becomes so insecure, he actually tries to murder David. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. If not, that's okay. We all have to start somewhere. But I would encourage you to read it. David eventually flees for his life, and by the time we come to 1 Samuel 22, 
1 Samuel chapter 22, David has had on more than one occasion King Saul or Saul's soldiers try to murder him. His reputation has been drugged through the mud. People are spreading rumors once again about David. And if I'm David, here's what I'm thinking. God, if you're real, if you're sovereign, why did you handpick me to be the king? And instead of living in the castle, sitting on the throne, here I am in the forest of Hereth in 1 Samuel 22, surrounded by Saul's bodyguards, and according to rabbinical tradition, David is starving to death. It's not that he hasn't eaten for two days. He is literally starving to death. Have you ever come in contact with someone who is starving to death? I have. David is starving to death. God has made him a promise, but he finds himself in a situation that does not line up with what he knows to be true about God. What do you do? What do you do when your situation doesn't line up with what you know to be true about God? You choose to trust God, even if your situation seems to give you reasons not to. And it is in 1 Samuel 22, when surrounded by people who want to kill him, when David sings, the Lord is my king. It's not what he says. The Lord is the great warrior. The Lord is the giant killer. No, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. At a time when being a shepherd, you were considered so inept, you were not even allowed to give testimony at a legal trial. God is not offended to be referred to as a shepherd. Aren't you reminded of the words of the prophet Isaiah? We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is him? The shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Really, David, you're starving to death. You're surrounded by people who want to kill you, and you have the audacity to tell me, to tell us, in Germantown, Wisconsin, you want nothing. There's a place, there's a place we can come to in God where even when our situation doesn't line up with his promise, he is enough. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastors. It's interesting. He makes us lie down in green pastures and we walk through the valley. It's easy to invert that. It's easy to walk through green pastures and lie down in the valley. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll discover green pastures don't just happen. They occur when the shepherd goes ahead of the sheep and the shepherd gets down with his own hands and he removes the sharp, jagged stones out of the earth and then he irrigates the ground and he plants seed and he prepares a green pasture for the sheep. I found out in my research of a book I wrote about the 23rd Psalm that shepherds in the open country back in the day, in David's day, they used to lie down with their sheep at night. How can a sheep lie down and sleep at night when wolves and other predators prowl around them because the good shepherd sleeps with the sheep? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. David obviously didn't have access to the gospels like we do, but I'm reminded of God leading us beside still waters. Do you remember the story in Mark 4? When Jesus tells his disciples to get into the boat, it was Jesus, knowing full well a storm will break on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, a storm so violent it blows the boat 13 miles off course. 
That tells me not all storms come from the evil one. God invited them to get into the boat knowing a storm would come. And in the middle of the storm, do you remember the story? They are terrified, convinced they're going to die. And where is Jesus? Where is God when we go through storms? Well, according to the Gospel of Mark, God is asleep in the bottom of the boat. Have you ever asked yourself, how can Jesus sleep in the bottom of the boat in the midst of a torrentious downpour and horrific storm? Perhaps it's because even in the midst of storms to God, it's not a storm at all. I picture it going like this. If I was one of the disciples, all hell is breaking loose around us, and I would ask the same question they asked, where is God? I would run down to the bottom of the boat, grab God, shake God, wake God up, drag God to the top of the boat, and say, God, let's stand here on the edge of the boat, and let's look at this for a second. Don't you see the wind and the waves? We're about to die. We're about to drown. How dare you fall asleep in the midst of a horrific trial that I'm experiencing? And I can just imagine Jesus grabbing me by the hand. Oh, disciple Heath, don't you see? Even now, in the midst of this horrific storm, the waters are still. I only lead you beside still waters. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I love that David acknowledges there's more than one path paved in righteousness. He says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Don't you love it when the righteous path leads to the green pasture? But there is another path paved in the righteousness of God that leads us to a valley, the valley of the shadow of death, but it is only a shadow. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. Halfway through the psalm, the language about God changes. It's noticeable in English. It's very noticeable in Hebrew. In the first half of the psalm, David refers to God in abstract terms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. But once David wanders out of the green pasture into the valley, he becomes you. You anoint my head with oil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That tells me there's this, this realm of intimacy that exists with God that is found, not in the green pasture, but in the valley. He prepares the table, not in the green pasture, but in the valley. Sometimes we think we are under spiritual attack, but actually God has hand-delivered an invitation to us to sit down at his table. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Remember, David is surrounded in 1 Samuel 22 by Saul's bodyguards, his elite soldiers. They want to kill David. There, there is no hope that David will receive a just trial. David has been promised by God, you're the next king, but his situation doesn't line up with what he knows to be true about God. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you remember, ancient Jewish shepherds used to carve symbols into their rod and their staff. Sometimes the rod and the staff was one instrument. Sometimes they had two separate instruments. It just depends on a few factors. 
And shepherds used to carve symbols into their staffs. For example, the Hebrew letter Lamed is in the shape of a shepherd's staff. When shepherds experienced something special that God did, they carved it under their instrument, and in the evening around the campfire, they took their rod and their staff, and they turned it around, and they shared the stories of God with one another. They did Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. When David is walking through the valley, he understands, I can't believe everything I think. I can't believe everything I feel. Because the heart is deceitful above all. So what does he do? He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. One of the best things we can do when we have a situation that doesn't line up with what we know to be true about God is to take his rod and his staff and let it comfort us. Are you with me? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he goes on to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I think if anyone can throw a party, it would be God. Allie and I have two girls. Dr. Cole said earlier they're both in college. But back in the day when they were younger, I remember whenever it was time to throw a birthday party, Allie always went to these stores where you can spend a lot of money and buy plates and tablecloths and balloons and streamers and everything has to match and everything has to be cute. You can even buy spoons and forks and knives for your preschooler because God and the angels know it's a good idea to give a preschooler a knife at a birthday party. And so everything had to be cute. I remember I could care less about the decor. What mattered to me is the cake. I'm a firm believer when it's a birthday party, I want a real cake. I want buttercream, right? I don't want the cool whip of spray paint on top. I want eight sticks of butter. I want, I want a couple pounds of sugar. That's what I cared about, the cake. Well, anyway, whenever we threw parties, after Allie bought the decor and I had my opinions about cake, we always sat down with the girls and we prepared this thing called a list. And we had a conversation as a family about who we were inviting to the birthday party. You can relate. Well, who would you like to invite to the party? I want to invite Emma. Why do you want to invite Emma? Emma's my friend. I play with her at church. Okay, who would you like to invite? And so they began to share their friends at school, their friends at church, their friends in the neighborhood. I don't recall a time where I ever looked at my wife, Allie, and I said, hey, babe, I've got a great idea. Let's invite the creepy neighbor. Let's invite a serial killer who was just released from prison, who is a threat to everybody he or she comes in contact with. As a matter of fact, let's just not invite our friends. Let's just invite everybody who's going to single-handedly destroy the entire moment for all of us. We never invited our enemies. Ever. And if anyone knows how to throw a party, it's God. And who does God invite when he prepares a table for you? He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemy. And your enemy, by the way, is never a person. Ever. But the enemy does have a name. Sometimes the enemy is named shame and depression and insecurity and guilt and narcissism and conflict. The enemy is never a person, but the enemy has a name. And can you imagine the look on the enemy's face when the enemy thinks he has you? You come around the corner and like David, you're surrounded by your enemy. 
Your situation doesn't line up with what you know to be true about God. And the enemy looks at you and he thinks, I have her. I have him. And can you imagine the look on the enemy's face when they see it? The table. And there's God standing there. Nice white towel over his arm. Come here, Heath. I've got a spot just for you. God, I didn't expect to see you here. After all, I'm, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by enemies. You're the last person I thought would be here. I didn't think you could be found in places like this. I thought you only could be found in places like the green pasture. And I walk up to the table, and there's two seats with my name right there. And your name is there too, by the way. And God pulls the chair out for us. And you sit down at the table, just you and God. And he's got all of our favorites. God, who are all these other people? Why did you invite the enemies? I just wanted the enemy to watch us sit down and feast together. He prepares a table in the presence of our enemy. David says, you anoint my head with oil, a reference to a few things. Could be a reference to the fact that in David's day, shepherds used to anoint the heads of their sheep with oil. They would put oil on the head of their sheep to repel the nasal fly. The nasal fly would climb up into the cavity of the sheep and drive them verifiably insane. But perhaps it means something different. David may find himself thinking about the time the prophet shows up. And in 1 Samuel 16, his head is anointed with oil in a moment when God handpicks him to be king. I would propose, though, David has something different in mind. And the reason I would say that is because of the words that follow. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. What's he referring to? He's referring to a custom that was common in his day among shepherds. Shepherds were nomadic people. Shepherds were always men. It was a male-dominated society at that time. And the way it went uh, was like this. When the sun would set over the Sinai Peninsula, a male shepherd would say to his family, and if he was a, um, a very wealthy shepherd, which rarely happened, but sometimes a shepherd even had servants helping him, He said to them, stay here. And the shepherd would look off into the distance and look for someone else's camp with a campfire. And so let's say I would say to Allie and the girls, stay here, and I wander towards your camp. You're a shepherd too, and you've got a uh, fire already built. I walk towards you, and here was the custom. Without saying a word, somebody alerted you, the the male shepherd of the family, and you walked toward me. And so here's kind of like the image. You've got a family over here. You've got a family over here. You've got sheep all over the place, and two male shepherds standing face to face looking at one another. And without saying a word, here's the custom, you had a container of oil, and you handed me the oil, and I anointed my head with oil. The reason I did that, there were two primary purposes. Number one, the oil had medicinal purpose. It would kill head lice. But secondly, it had an aromatic purpose. It covered over body odor. Remember, we're shepherds. We're wandering around the desert. There is no Holiday Inn or Motel 6. There's no Bath and Body Works for the ladies. There's no Axe Body Spray for the junior high guys. There's none of that. We have body odor, and we stink. We haven't bathed in days. 
and I anoint my head with oil. Then I turn around and I anoint the head of everyone else in my family with oil as well. And without saying a word, you invite me and my entire family into your tent, and we shared a meal together. And the meal typically consisted of things like flatbread, dates, raisin cakes, um, sometimes some meat, depending upon the time of year, curds and honey, honey not from the bee, but honey from dates. And at the end of the meal, here was the custom. You, being the male shepherd, you walked up to me, and I hold out my cup. And the unwritten rule was, if you took a wineskin and you filled my cup up halfway, it was your way of saying, hey, you know what, Heath, the conversation's been great, but you need to leave. But if you fill my cup up to the top, it was your way of saying, there's something special about you and your family. Why don't you spend the night with us? And if you filled my cup up to the top, long after the children fell asleep, guess what we did? We sat around the campfire and we took our rod and our staff and we remembered the deeds of the Lord. David says of God, you anoint my head with oil and God does not fill his cup up halfway. God does not fill his cup up to the top. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now we understand why David ends his psalm by saying, surely, not hopefully. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me. In Hebrew, it means literally pursue me, hunt me down like vermin, chase, chase after me. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the one handpicked by God to be the king over the nation does not say, I finally get to dwell in the king's castle. He says, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do you do when your situation, your experience, sometimes present day, sometimes years ago, we just haven't dealt with it yet. What do you do when your situation doesn't line up with what you know to be true about God from his word? You choose to trust God. You choose to love God. You choose to serve Jesus, even if your situation gives you reasons not to. Let's pray. Spirit of God, today you have been so good because you have communicated to us each one of us in a language we understand. And I thank you for the example of the little child who came to you with what he had and you listened. Lord, like your sons and daughters today, we come before you and we don't have much to offer apart from your grace and your mercy, but you still listen. You listen because you are not only our King and our Lord, you are also our shepherd. I pray that today each person will hear your divine voice and whisper. Invite them to the table. So with every eye closed, I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question is this. Perhaps you find yourself today in the room or you're listening or watching and you don't know God. The good news about God is when you look at him, he, 
He only has love for you because of what Jesus did. God is merciful and gracious. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. God has mercy and grace. And if you're in the room today and you would say, you know what, I don't know Jesus. I want to have a relationship with God. It does not necessarily matter if you've attended a few church services, if you've given in the offering, if you've taken some classes or even been baptized in water. What matters is, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? I'm asking, do you know him? And if that's you today and you would say, you know what, today I want to submit my life to Jesus. I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I want Jesus to be the leader of my life. I want Jesus to change me. And if that's you today and you would say, you know what, remember me, God, Heath, pray for me. I want to make things right with Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up really quick and then you can put it down. Good choice. Good choice. It's a good move. Good choice. Way to go. I'm proud of you. It's a good choice. Thank you. You can put them down. I want to ask a second question. If you're in the room today and you would say, I am facing a situation that does not line up with what I know to be true about God. I feel like I'm wandering through a valley and I need to find the table. I need the courage. I need the courage to walk past the enemy and sit down at my place, at my rightful place that God has prepared for me. I want to feast in the presence of God, with God, in the midst of my situation. I choose to trust God, even if my situation gives me a reason not to. And if that's you and you would say, I would like prayer today, remember me, I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up really quick. Hands up all over. Will everyone please stand? Please stand to your feet. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And then we're going to worship God, and I know Pastor will come and give us some instruction. But for those of you who raised your hands, both for the first or the second time, just know this, that God is here, and God is near, and God is with you. And right now, in the next few minutes, God is going to come and walk among us, and God is going to whisper hope to us, and God is going to meet us, each and every one of us, where we are. God, I pray for every hand that was raised. I thank you that you are meeting them right now where they are. We come humbly before you, Jesus, and we just say, God, you are our good shepherd. We choose to sit down at your table and feast in your presence, and I thank you that it was true for David. David, it is true for us. Surely, surely, in the name of Jesus, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever to the glory of God. Amen. Let's worship together.